0: Well, I look forward to following up that inspiring extravaganza. It's difficult to say exactly when this psalm that we're about to hear was written. The psalms were composed over a span of roughly 500 years or so. But it either foreshadows or reflects upon the fate of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in those days, was a city destined for ruin. Located in the heart of a long power struggle in the ancient Near East, it was in frequent danger of being overrun. And in the year 586 BCE, that is precisely what happened when the Babylonian Empire breached her walls. Jerusalem's story, much like our own, much like the story of humanity itself, is a cycle of ruin and restoration. So how did her inhabitants and how do we persevere in faith when it feels like the end of the world gets a little closer every day?
1: Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city, it shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me.
0: Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you and may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen the year was 1845 sir john franklin was a seasoned explorer of the arctic He'd barely survived an ill-fated expedition in which he and his men had been stranded in the far north and forced to boil their own leather boots for sustenance. And now he set out once more into those icy waters, leading an expedition of two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, on a quest to complete the Northwest Passage above Canada. It was a journey from which he would never return. The first year of the expedition went smoothly enough, but in September of 1846, both ships became frozen in the pack ice. They wintered there in place for two whole years, waiting for a thaw that would never come. Endless sunlight gave way to perpetual darkness as the seasons changed. Temperatures fell as low as 40 degrees below zero, and the coal that heated the ships was slowly diminishing, along with their supply of food. Franklin had contracted with the cheapest distributor of canned meat and vegetables, a company by the name of Goldners, who rushed the order and hastily soldered the cans with lead that leaked into the food. What Franklin saved in gold, he later paid for in disease and possibly even mutiny. Makes those Chicago winters almost seem bearable. According to a note dated April 25th, 1848, found in a cairn on King William Island, Franklin had apparently perished under mysterious circumstances the year before, in 1847. Their surviving crew had just abandoned the ships and made an attempt to walk south. But no one ever saw them again. Now, I first learned about this tragic incident in a sort of roundabout way. I'd read a book many years ago called The Terror, a bit of historical fiction with elements of supernatural horror. You see, while the author was faithful to most of the historical details of the expedition, He also added a giant bear-like monster that stalked and terrorized the crew while they were frozen in the ice. Right up my alley. But in truth, I actually found the bit about the monster to be superfluous. I mean, the historical record is quite unsettling enough on its own. The isolation, the cold and the dark, starvation. It's already a pretty scary story. And in situations like that, people have the capacity to become monsters themselves. I can only imagine how they behaved in these awful conditions. Surely some of them were noble to the end, clinging to their integrity and their humanity. But others no doubt fought one another and preyed on each other as their resources dwindled to nothing, making a bad situation that much worse of the remains that were discovered, the crew were scattered in multiple different directions, indicating a lack of cooperation, even in the most dire circumstances. I saw a movie last week that plays with some similar ideas, recalling the story of a young sailor who's marooned on an iceberg for several days after his vessel sinks, and his only company is that of a lone walrus. I'm not going to tell you what this movie is called, because I really don't think you should watch it. It's It's a horror film, it's not for the faint of heart, and I take no responsibility if you decide to track it down on your own. But it's October, and I like to squeeze in as many scary movies as my schedule allows. Now, the film's premise is as bizarre and absurd as it is unsettling. A podcaster travels to rural Canada to interview an old seafarer about his adventures in the Arctic as a much younger man. The old sailor relates this tale of being stranded with the walrus, who he affectionately refers to as Mr. Tusk, a gentle creature who befriended him in his darkest hour. But the sailor, now a much older man, turns out to be a psychopath who kidnaps his visitor and tries to force him to wear a walrus suit. Bear with me. He wants to relive those days in the company of his old friend, Mr. Tusk. And when the poor victim asks his captor why he's doing this, the older man replies, to solve a riddle older than the Sphinx, to answer the question which has plagued us since we first crawled from the earth and stood erect in the sun. Is man indeed a walrus at heart? I really enjoy these kinds of deep philosophical films that probe life's great questions. Perhaps we could watch it in the film group sometime. But anyway, we come to find out that when he was marooned on that little iceberg, the young sailor ended up turning to Mr. Tusk for sustenance, consuming him to stay alive only an hour before he was rescued. And the guilt festered in him for decades, twisting his mind. The old man embarks upon a number of soliloquies in the film about the evils of human nature and the moral superiority of the animal kingdom. Man is a savage animal, he declares. Better to be a walrus. Extreme circumstances like being stranded on an iceberg, for instance, can bring out both the best and the worst of human nature. They can kindle the divine light within us, the part of us that's made in God's image, or they can force us to do terrible and regrettable things out of desperation and fear. And it may well be, friends, that extreme circumstances are in our future if even half of what climate scientists are telling us is true. While there's little risk of getting marooned in a sea of Arctic ice these days, the ice is melting as we speak, pouring into the sea and washing ashore on the world's shrinking coastlines. And the introduction of most of the world's fresh water into the saline ocean creates other ripple effects that only accelerate the impact of this changing world. It's already impacting human behavior. People are already suffering from a kind of eco-anxiety. The American Psychological Association recognizes this, claiming that environmental change, or at least the perception of it, the fear of it, is leading to depression, PTSD, even suicide among people who are profoundly affected and profoundly afraid of what the future holds. Some people are even deciding not to have children for fear of the world they'd be bringing them into. I know it's something I worry about with my own kids. The magnitude of the threat breeds apathies. People feel helpless to stop it. But this isn't a sermon, really, about reversing the trend. Yes, there is work to be done if we're to mitigate the worst-case scenario. Climate change isn't an all-or-nothing business. It's a continuum, literally, A matter of degrees, and there's a lot that we can do to limit the damage. But let's be honest, some change, at least, is probably inevitable. There will be extreme weather. There will be flooding. There will be refugees. But who will be their refuge? This message, this psalm, is about how we continue to live as people of faith even if the earth melts, even if the worst should come to pass. The psalm's language evokes our contemporary anxiety. We will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. God speaks, the earth melts. Now, obviously, I'm projecting you know, the author of the psalm had no concept of carbon emissions or environmental change. These are, these are metaphors for other dangers. And there were plenty of existential threats to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The greatest among these, as I mentioned earlier, was the Babylonian Empire, a military machine that threatened to roll over the city and destroy their way of life. This psalm is an assurance that God's love is with them, come what may. It's with them and in them, flowing through them like a river that makes glad the city of God. Now that doesn't mean that bad things wouldn't happen. Terrible things happened. Babylon laid waste to the city and flooded her streets with soldiers, exiled half of its people, dragged the others back to the empires, servants and slaves. The Israelites persevered, maintained their faith, their identity, their integrity, even in the worst of times. And in time, they came home, and they rebuilt what they had lost. There was an academic paper published not too long ago by Dr. Jem Bendall, a professor of sustainability leadership Uh, out of the University of Cumbria. It's called Deep Adaptation, a map for navigating climate tragedy. Now on the one hand, it's a very disturbing and depressing report. Bendel argues that it's already too late to reverse the impacts of climate change and that human society as we know it is likely to collapse within 10 years. Now, whether that claim is alarmist and overblown, I really have no way of knowing. But he does offer a roadmap for navigating a changing world that could be applied to any crisis, whether it's personal or literally earth-shattering. His deep adaptation thesis, that is, how we adapt to crisis, is comprised of three dimensions. Resilience, relinquishing, and restoration. And the Israelites model all three of these after the fall of Jerusalem. They are resilient. They maintain their Jewish identity even as they live and work in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah tells the ones who have been exiled, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Put simply, they continue to live, much as they always have, albeit in a changed world. But those Israelites also had to relinquish a great deal, their home, their city, the lives they knew. So too, if our world changes dramatically, we will have to make sacrifices, some of which we can scarcely begin to imagine. But Bendal's final stage of deep adaptation offers a word of hope and restoration. Those ancient exiles, after several decades, were finally able to return home and rebuild Jerusalem. And maybe one day, even if the worst should come to pass, we can rebuild. Maybe not the world we knew, but a new world, maybe a better one. Resilience, relinquishing, restoration. But none of these things are possible if we succumb to despair or if we turn on our neighbors, if we pray on one another, if we don't rely on our better angels to navigate a changing world. If teachings of Jesus don't go out the window at the first sign of trouble. Perhaps if the earth melts and the seas rise, it would be better to be a walrus. But personally, I'd rather be a human being. I heard a, I heard a story recently, sort of spooky campfire tale, that speaks volumes about our humanity. It's called Men Imitating Things. <clears throat> there was a man who lived deep in the woods alone, He preferred it that way. He found other people to be inconsiderate and irritating. He lived in a cabin miles from the nearest town, and the only sounds he was accustomed to hearing were the wind and the chirping of birds. But one day, he heard something else. It was the sound of dogs barking, which was surprising. No one lived out here, and he'd never seen any wild dogs in the forest. But even stranger, there was something distinctly off about the sound. It was wrong somehow. It, it sounded less like dogs barking, he thought, and more like men imitating the sound of dogs barking. He brushed off the thought. But later that night, as he lay in bed, it began to rain. And again, something was wrong. As he listened to the rain pattering against his roof, it occurred to him that it sounded less like rain and more like men imitating the sound of rain. The next day, when he stepped outside, he found deer tracks outside of his cabin. Being as the man lived off of the land, he decided to track down the deer to see if he couldn't bring it home for supper. So grabbing his rifle, he set out into the woods. And after about an hour or so, he finds the deer uh, in a distant clearing. But just as he was about to take the shot, he notices something odd on the periphery of his vision. Turning and squinting a little, he realizes that uh, there's something strange. There's, a, there's an odd-looking bush in the distance, but he realizes that it isn't actually a bush at all but rather a man imitating a bush squatting down amongst the shrubbery and covered in leaves strange but it got stranger when the man stood up revealing legs that weren't human more like tree branches the arms too were covered in greenery and vines and the sylvan creature stood up and ran off into the woods and the man He thought back on the barking dogs, on the odd sound of the falling rain, and he had a terrible epiphany. He realized then that what he had been experiencing all of this time was not men imitating things, but rather things imitating men. Now there's a point to this story. Probably. The point is this. It occurs to me that sometimes people behave less like men and women and more like things imitating men and women, going through the motions, living without purpose, ignoring the teachings of Jesus who tried to help us live like real human beings with empathy and compassion and love, treating one another badly, turning a blind eye to suffering, forfeiting our humanity, Better, maybe, to be a walrus. I don't know what the future holds for this world. But regardless of what changes around us, God does not change. And we are called to fulfill God's will by living up to our fullest human potential, to cling to our humanity in an inhumane world. Now in the context of climate change, that means fighting to mitigate its impacts along with the rest of our collective problems as a society. But it also means being humane even if the earth melts, even if one day there are only two people left alive on this planet, floating adrift on a melting iceberg, we are still called to love each other. As long as we do, our lives will still have purpose and meaning. Human decency, in the final analysis, is the only thing that can save us. And friends, it is the only thing that makes us worth saving. Amen.